Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 79 for January the 11th, 2012. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and this week my guest on the Chat Chat is Mr. Paul Ducklin. He is the head of technology for Asia Pacific at Sophos. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester, and a happy new year to you all in Canada. Happy new year to you as well. Uh, it's good to get the first Chat Chat of the year in a little bit late, but, uh, you know, it's only a nine on the uh, calendar. It was good having a little bit of time off. Chester, since you can't go to the beach on Christmas Day and New Year, what on earth do you do? Tell you what, I sat around and I did the traditional New Year's Eve uh, crossword puzzle from Naked Security. I want to thank you for putting that together again for us, along with the uh, Dragon Tattoo Contest. It sounds like people had a pretty good time. Yes, and three lucky people won Lego Mindstorms just in time for Christmas. Well, on to the week's news. Um, There was obviously lots of things that happened over the holidays, and we're not going to dive into everything, but there were a few things that uh, got a little bit of attention, and I guess the most recent one uh, was this uh, smart meter hacking video. Uh, Some interesting stuff, like some of these smart meters in Germany that were presented at the Chaos Computing Conference uh, we're recording data in two second intervals, and it was quite shocking to see the types of information you can determine about someone's behavior or usage of products all the way down to what you might watch on your television uh, simply by looking at power usage data. And, you know, as we move forward in many municipalities, like here in British Columbia and Canada, we're, we're being forced to uh, install these meters. We don't have a choice, whereas in Germany, at least these gentlemen... Uh, opted into a program where they could trial one. Uh, Do we have a lot to be worried about for privacy, or is all of this really just to make the world a safer, greener place? Chester, I think the problem is it's not just about smart meters. It's about lots and lots of things in our everyday lives. The sampling rate at which we can measure possibly minor aspects of our life and then record them and analyze them later, but that sampling rate is just so high, it doesn't seem so surprising that at such a tight granularity, with the right sort of cosine transforms applied to the data, you can actually read an awful lot into that signal you're getting. And what I did like in what happened at the Chaos Computer Congress is that, uh, if if I remember correctly, the CEO of the company that provides that meter actually came to the conference and instead of being in denial mode said, gosh, guys, it's pretty obvious that this two-second sample rate was in fact too high and it was not our intention to be able to get that much data, which is... a really nice thing to hear. It's a little bit like somebody from Google standing up and saying, you know what, we're going to do Street View, but we're just going to take some general low-resolution pictures from street corners. We're not going to zoom in on everybody's front door and front garden. And I thought that was a really good sign. It shows that, that there are companies that want to use technology in progressive ways that are actually prepared to back off a little bit when it's shown that there might be privacy implications in what they're doing. So I took some good heart out of that. It was encouraging, and it was nice that he uh, spent the time to attend a conference like that. Uh, another story that uh, got quite a bit of confusion out there that I thought we can maybe do some clarification around to what degree we can was a story about the Wi-Fi protected setup option that's included in many routers now. Oh, so yes. You... There are so many variables here that unfortunately we can only advise you generally. It's a thorny problem, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, I think from a high level, what I want to start with is that WPA does, or WPA2 for that matter, does not equal WPS. Don't confuse the acronyms. So it's not related specifically to a problem with the actual cryptography used to secure the wireless bits as they fly from your laptop to your access point. It's more about the method you use to distribute the magical key that allows a trusted device to join your network. 
And uh, some folks apparently have a difficult time remembering 20 character passphrases, which is probably a good recommendation or a good starting point for a choice of a key that you might use uh, with WPA2 to secure your router. And so the companies came up with this alternative called WPS or Wi-Fi Protected Setup. And the, there's kind of three methods to it. We're not going to go through all of it. But one of the ways to tell whether your router supports this or not is it likely has a little button on the top of it that says easy setup or something like this. All the brands call it something a little bit different. But most of them have, uh, you know, three methods that you can use to authenticate a brand new device to your network. You can choose to press that physical button, which enables kind of a timeout window of a, a moment or two, uh, I think one or two minutes that you can then go onto your iPad or your Android phone or your laptop and say, uh, connect to this access point, and it'll automatically, the next device that tries to connect, allow that device to connect. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Um, there's another method, which is that you can set up, uh, you know, say on your iPhone and go on it and say, I want to connect to this router, and the iPhone will say, here is my six-digit PIN or eight-digit PIN, and then you go onto the router's firmware in the web interface, and you type in that eight-digit PIN, and it allows them to exchange the keys securely. And the third method, which is the problematic method, is a method where the router itself has some sort of eight-digit key printed on the sticker, usually, like on the serial number sticker on the bottom, at which you can just enter into any device that you want to connect, and it will automatically authenticate to the router without any further intervention. I guess the simplest summary of this, that that approach is, at least as far as I'm concerned, cryptographically crazy. You have a system, WPA2, which is reasonably secure, but then if you have a user who's not capable of typing in a 20-character password, let's provide a hardwired eight-digit password that's written permanently on the bottom of the router that they can type in instead. And by the way, let's also mess up the cryptography again so that it really is only like a six or seven digit, not even character password. It just seems that if you're going to take that approach, why not just put a blank sticker on top of the router where somebody can write down the password that they chose to the strength that they like, and if somebody's having trouble logging in, they can look at that. You know, then when you want to change it, you can just put a sticker over the previous sticker and so forth, instead of burning something into the router. So the moral of the story is if you have a router that supports WPS as the configuration mode for WPA2, turn off the WPS if you can. The problem is that every firmware that I've seen has a slightly different way of configuring WPS. For example, the Wi-Fi router device thingy that I have that I carry around with me the firmware on that, the, the, the web UI, it actually offers two choices for WPS. It has the client pin mode, which is where I choose to authenticate somebody who wants to join in, which is fair enough, or the push button mode. It doesn't make any mention of any other mode, but you can't turn it off. You have to have one or the other. You can't say, I don't want this feature at all because I don't need it. And in fact, the only firmware distribution that I'm personally familiar with where you can easily control this, is OpenWRT, which I've got on my router at home. There, you can actually leave out the code module you need to support WPS, which means that you can't turn it on even by accident. And that would seem to be, if your router does support OpenWRT, or one of these open-source firmwares, you might want to consider that, because it is a bit more configurable, and it's easier to see what you're getting into. Yeah, and don't get intimidated by things like uh, OpenWRT or Tomato Router and these alternative firmwares because most of them have a very easy-to-use web interface available for those that don't want to go into the command line and insert and remove modules and edit config files and all this kind of stuff. It just gives you a lot more control over what's happening. 
I mean, we had a naked security reader write in about uh, a tech support incident he had with his Netgear router, where Netgear actually said the only way to disable WPS was to turn on WEP mode because you can't use WPS with WEP. Um, And suggesting that someone go to something that can be cracked in two minutes seems rather absurd. Indeed. In fact, I think I may have converted that chap who wrote in to OpenWRT, but uh, since I work for a commercial software vendor, don't tell anybody. Okay. And the, the last story I wanted to talk about, the hacking of a defense uh, consultancy firm called Stratfor over the holidays. Uh, 850,000 people's login IDs were disclosed in, in addition to some credit cards and email addresses and a bunch of other information. And the confusion was around password hashes, right? So password hashes were stolen, which means if your password was kitten, it wasn't like the attackers when they downloaded this database saw that the login was Paul Ducklin and the password was kitten. They, they get a, a cryptographic uh, hash. Can you clarify for us this MD5 hashing scheme that many websites use to store our passwords, which is far superior to the the plain text method that companies like Sony decided to use. Um, however, what is superior about it? And what does it mean? If you are writing a web backend or any database system that needs to allow people to log in with a username and password, you do have this dilemma of how do you prove that they know the password without being in a situation where you are obliged to store the password yourself. So the hash represents, if you like, a one-way function, a fingerprint of the password. If you take the password and hash it and store only the hash, you can verify that the person knows the password. In other words, they supply it to you only in memory. You hash it and compare it with your stored hash. If they match, you've satisfied yourself that the password is correct. And that means that you don't actually need to store the plain text of the password. So it can't get stolen and nobody inside your organization can go rootling through that database and just start getting an idea of what sort of passwords people choose except that there is a problem with hashed passwords, and that's that even with modern hash algorithms like, say, SHA-256, if you just take the password and take its hash, then every time two people choose the same password, it gets the same hash in the database. And that means that just by casual examination, you can actually see where the two accounts have the same password, which is, again, information that is not necessary for you to have in your database in order to do the password validation. And the other problem is, of course, that if you always hash the passwords in exactly the same way, then Banana will always come out with exactly the same hash. And what that means is you can go through a dictionary in advance and you can pre-compute what all the hashes would be for that possibly very extensive dictionary. And then to look up known passwords, you don't even need to do any calculations at all. All you're doing is a dictionary lookup. Well, in this case, we saw <clears throat> several different people trying to, um, you know, decipher these hashes from Stratfor. Many of them had varying rates of large numbers of success. And I have seen everything from 60 to 90 some percent of the passwords being derived by computing these hashes and figuring out what people's passwords were. Yes. The, so the, the, the two hash strengthening techniques that one can use, one is what's called salting. What that means is that when the person chooses a password, you don't just hash the password, you pick a random number, which you actually store in the database, so that would get stolen along with the hashes, admittedly, that maybe eight bytes, say, randomly generated bytes, that you append to the password before you hash it. That means that if two people choose the same password, say, banana, the chance of the salts of their passwords being the same is tiny. So the actual hash of their password 
is at least going to come out differently. It also means that for any one password that anyone might choose, there are eight bytes worth of variance of salt. So your dictionary becomes two to the power 64 times bigger just for the entry banana, because there are so many different ways that the password can actually get injected into the hashing algorithm in the first place. And the second thing you can do is don't just hash once. What you can do is you can actually hash over and over and over and over again, which does make the cost of checking the password higher. Let's say you do a thousand or two thousand or ten thousand iterations where you hash and rehash and rehash the password. But again, that means when an attacker comes and they want to do a brute force or a dictionary attack, not only can they not use pre-computed tables because of the salt, it also means that you're making their attack a thousand or ten thousand or however many times more complex. These do not replace not using the database in the first place. And of course, they do not replace choosing at least a half-decent password in the first place. So even if you make a dictionary attack really complicated, the attackers are going to try the most obvious passwords first, which means that the weaker your password, the earlier you'll fall to the bad guys. Right. And, 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 the, and the last point, which is, uh, of course, to use a different password for these different websites. And, and I realize that uh, most people uh, have a difficult time with this, but there are all kinds of different tricks and programs and utilities and things you can use to assist you with this. But if your password is different on Stratfor than it is on Sony, than it is on Epsilon's website, perhaps then even if it's stolen from Stratfor, at least your Gmail's not at risk or your Sony account's not at risk because you have a different password everywhere you go. I just want to make one other point um, to your explanation, Paul, and when you talked about not storing plain text, uh, it also prevents your staff uh, from impersonating accounts. It's much more, there's a lot more auditability and, and acknowledgement that when a given user has accessed the system, it was much more likely to be that particular user. That's a good point it, because it means that for somebody to change the password, say for me to change your password or to get to know your password, I would actually have to write to the password database to change the hash to the hash of a password I knew rather than simply read it to look at the password. It just seems unappealing that you would actually store somebody's password in a way that somebody might just glimpse it on the screen and then be able to use it. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why when you get a cash point, an ATM card from the bank, generally what the bank will do is you'll get the card via, via in one mail, and then later you'll get one of those tamper-proof mailers that comes from a completely different mailing site and the idea is that that pin, nobody in the bank can ever actually work out what it was. They simply do not know. And if they've implemented the system correctly, cannot find out. It's for you and you alone to know. The P in pin stands for personal. That should be exactly the same thing for any passwords you choose. You shouldn't really be telling them to other people. And you should be picking vendors and service providers and cloud partners who actually treat your passwords in the same way. They treat them as PII, so they're not storing them in a way that they can go and look up what they are at will. Well, thank you for the excellent explanation, Paul. Um, I think there was a lot of confusion about that and the WPS story uh, from our readers on the blog. And without writing a, a longer explanation, I think it's, it's a lot of people, it's easier to hear it. And you go, okay, you start nodding your head and you're listening to the podcast. You're like, yep, yep, I get it. Also like to invite folks to please vote for us. Uh, if you are a security blogger, or a podcaster and uh, happen to listen to the chat chat, 
Uh, Naked Security is up for some uh, nominations at the Security Bloggers Awards for RSA this year, so we'd like to encourage you to please vote, and if you're eligible, you'll know where to go to vote. And um, anything else, Paul? Well, I'm going to say this so it doesn't sound self-serving if you say it, but I voted last night in the Security Bloggers Awards, and when it came to vote for podcasts, if you fancy a podcast, chat chat, hint hint, that isn't on the list, you can actually email the organizers and say, my favorite podcast is this, and when I voted, and I did vote for you, of course, Chester, I even put in a little explanation about why I like the way you go about interviewing and explaining stuff. So if you are voting for us, you can vote for Chet Chat, even though it looks as though it's not on the list. Well, thanks for that, Paul. I appreciate it. And that concludes Software Security Chat Chat 79. As always, you can get all of our podcasts uh, via iTunes or RSS, or even go to podcasts.sophos.com. And until next time, stay secure.